0: yeah, 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 I'm glad that my childhood and my teen years happened before social media really kicked in, um, before the internet took over and just became this thing that you always attached to because going outside and just getting up to juvenile mischief and childish bullshit was just so fun, (laughs) like, yeah, like, man, even silly stuff, like, I used to love pranking people, right, um, there was the mad trick back then, which was, either 1-800-REVERSE or 1-800-MUM-DAD where you used to be able to call for free off a payphone if you didn't have any coins, but it would charge the person who answers. But the best trick was when you used to be able to get a Macca's straw or the blue straw that used to be at quick service stations before Seven Eleven bought out quick service stations. And if you jammed it in the coin slot on the right angle, it gave you credit for the payphone essentially, right? So, um, I used to go by myself after school to the payphone outside the milk bar on Tortoise Drive, North Ringwood, and I just used to prank people, you know? Like, uh, what you do is you just dial in the first four digits of the area code, like for Ringwood 9876, and then just any random four numbers, so you're just calling some fucking landline in the local area, (laughs) you know, and then... When they'd answer, just start some silly tirade, you know what I mean? Like, sometimes it'd just be, like, hello, Cindy. (laughs) You know, like, when all those, like, Hollywood slasher films came back in the 90s. Like, I know what you did last summer, or Scream, or all this kind of shit. But also sometimes just put on like a British accent and just waste their fucking time like just talk to them pretend to be British or just fucking anything you know what I mean I just kind of got off on doing it for a while by (laughs) by myself you know it was silly but yeah you know like my brother my older brother was always tech with the mischief as well like he was always advanced like I remember him showing me how to make the orange cannons back in the day where you used to be able to get those old square cordial bottles and attach like a PVC pipe to, to it and put a hole in it. And then you put an orange in there and you could spray Lynx deodorant and like a barbecue lighter or something at the same time to ignite it. And those things would rock at oranges, man. Like my brother, he nearly knocked down the fucking wooden fence with one of those at our old place. Like, yeah, those things had a bit of bit of horsepower to them, you know. And then even when we lived in North Ringwood, um, I remember hearing this this explosion one day, Like, and my brother and his mate had gone to um, Parkwood Secondary College, which is on Tortoise Drive in North Ringers. And we lived like about a furlong away, 200 meters away. And I heard this thing. And then the next day I remember going to look at the cricket pitch and my brother and his mate had blown the fucking cricket pitch out with like a Drano bomb, you know? (laughs) Like, yeah, like the Drano bombs. And yeah, the school shut down a few years later anyway. Yeah, just these funny things we used to do when we were kids, you know, like throwing lemons at cars. And I can remember walking around in broad daylight in Warrandyte, bashing letterboxes in with cricket wickets, me, my brother, and my mate. Just so stupid, but so fucking funny at the time. Probably not funny if you're on the receiving end of any of this behavior, but... Yeah, this is like sometimes I look at young kids and I wonder do they still knock around in the streets and kick the footy at least? Let alone like setting off bombs and stuff like that. Are they at least out there kicking the footy? Like <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on. Maybe I need to have some kids of my own as an experiment. Fuck knows. <laughs> yeah. 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 By the time i was 13 i started to really get exposed to all corners of the city i was hanging out with other kids from all sorts of hoods you know one minute you could be in the dodgiest neighborhood in melbourne really different multicultural areas and then next minute you could be in the most white middle melbourne upper class neighborhood we were just rocking all over the city with different crews you know and of course naturally through this kind of behavior you get exposed to gang culture Gang culture in Melbourne and probably Australia from to speak as a whole, it's always been a problem, but you'll find it's always the same narrative, right? The media has tried to paint it in the past to be like a racial based thing. And yeah, you do have certain crews that form together and are uh, united by race. And you know, you had like the whole Apex, Peter Dutton, African gang thing permeated throughout the media in the lead up to that one election but the thing is they tried that 10 years earlier as well um, with the Sudanese gangs around dandy and stuff the problem is yeah you might have a small minority of gangs that are cohesively together as one nationality but there's gangs and gang members from all nationalities and a lot of crews are mixed race crews right it's really got nothing to do with race and it's got everything to do with young disenfranchised males taking to the streets in order to find other kids with like-minded lifestyles and compatibility in the sense that they're disenfranchised, they got poor home lives, they got serious lack of identity, and then what happens is they get swept up in the vacuums of these crews and these gangs, right? All of a sudden they've got a code of moral ethics, uh, they've got the brotherhood and the sense of family that they've never had a home. They've got a reason and a purpose to exist. And the thing is, it's just good branding, man. That's the thing about gang culture is it's like good branding, <laughs> you know, like, but hear me out because you've got these crews with really cool names and then within all these crews, everyone's got really cool nicknames. Back in the day, most of my friends, you never really called them by their actual like government first name, Right. Everyone had a really cool nickname, um, this and that, or a tag. You would refer to them by their graffiti tag if they did graffiti. You know, and then they come together under these banners of gangs where everybody dresses the same, moves in unison with each other, lives the same lifestyle, has the same fuck the world attitude. And of course, you're going to get young, disenfranchised males with a serious lack of identity that are going to find pride in this, you know? And I think that's why it all starts in the home. It starts with the upbringing. And they want to push the narrative that some of this gang behavior is just because of people's race or because of people's religion or something. That's just kind of uh, irrelevant. And yeah, back in the day, you did have race-related gangs. Uh, I'm trying to think from my era, of of course, like Oakley Wogs or Broadie Boys, um, probably Yellow Boys, North Richmond Boys, FBI, Full-Blooded Islanders. Um, You had like predominantly white Aryan like prison gangs, you know. Um, Cambo Clowns, right? Cambo Clowns was a big, big name back in the day. Everyone actually thought Cambo Clowns was in reference to Camberwell, a suburb of Melbourne. But actually the Cambo was short for Cambodian. But there was big, big like rumor and mystique about this gang back in the day because that guy that died at Noble Park Station and they had this big rumour that they would uh, slice, your, slice your mouth left and right to create like a smile, you know, way before Heath Ledger and the Joker and Batman and stuff, <laughs> you know. This is like the big, big, big rumour mill that played into the, the urban legends of the street with Cambo clowns, etc. But that's the thing is you've got these males that it gives them a sense of purpose because they come up hearing the lineage of Australian crime folklore from all levels of crime all the way down to the infamous street gangs of their era and older heads that have moved on and passed on that still have huge legacies in the street and the thing is it gives young people an outlet and a purpose to create their own legacy within the streets when they've got nothing else because people feel like their back's against the wall and it's us versus them it's them versus the jacks it's them versus their families, it's them versus the world, it's them versus the government, that fuck everybody mentality, your only role with like-minded individuals, and it's the branding, like I said too, it's the fucking branding, like even with a lot of the crews from back in the day that crossed over and straddled the line between graffiti and criminal gang, man some of the names were just mad, just fresh, like just sounds cool, you know, like uh, CW, Crime Wave, KSA, Kicking Some ass lbk lazy but crazy love and box cutters ftk full-time crime fresh transit crime famous to cops <laughs> mad crew uh, like you know uh rom raised on murder roc rich off crime mts menace to society rm rock in melbourne razor wire mentality like the list just goes on and on and on and I rolled with a lot of these aforementioned crews too and a lot of guys from back in those days either moved on with their lives but a lot of guys from these crews went on to become super well-known in the adult prison system of Victoria. A lot of these guys went on to become like full-scale criminals and um, a lot of mixed stories that come out of this era. But yeah, I think there's a lot of variables that influence young people towards getting involved in gangs. But one thing that I heard really early from a guy who was actually in one of these crews that I just mentioned, I won't mention which, I won't mention who, but he did say to me once upon a time when I was really young, maybe 14, 15 years old, he said, don't be blindsided by crews. He was a lot older than me, probably 10 years older. And he said, because sooner or later, loyalty switch, drugs become involved. Uh, survival within the criminal world and the prison system becomes involved. Loyalties switch, gangs become fractured, people mold and change, gangs mold and change, members go in, members go out. Um, the banner remains but sometimes the brotherhood and the loyalty that you thought you had underneath changes. You see this with uh bikey gangs etc uh, etc et a lot it's very common that always stuck to me in the back of my mind because you know I rolled with a lot of people from a lot of like different gangs and many of them quite prominent but I always was like a bit of an enigmatic individual myself and I just rolled with these people on a friendship level but I was always quite I was always quite cautious about claiming a gang because it was a serious thing back then you know as stupid as it might sound to someone who's never grown up with this culture they think and yeah it probably sounds so silly to people outside of the realm of this world they think why do these young kids take it so seriously you know and I get that uh but you have to understand when we look at this from a socio-economic level and a psychological level it's about brotherhood it's about survival it's about identity and also, like, gang culture is just fucking cool. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But I do look at these kind of um, young crews these days getting involved in things like what they're dubbing the post-code wars and people, you know, risking their freedoms and risking their lives to represent an area just because once upon a time their mum decided to rent a house there. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's really all it is. Like, but I can understand because I look back and I think, well... I was from an area that had a pretty dodgy reputation back in the day so it's kind of like flipping that on its head and having area pride and representing it to the fullest because it's almost like you're trying to flip the narrative it's it's a you versus the world thing yeah so you always try and flip the narrative of your area and turn it into somewhere to represent and because it's where you're raised you know you've got a lot of strong memories attached to the area but um Yeah, what that bloke said to me years ago, it rang true many years later, I must say, because a lot of these gangs, they don't exist anymore, and the heads that are still going from these gangs that are still active, they're moving in new circles, or they've got a couple of old allegiances from back in the day, and to be honest, like, even some of the biggest psychos I knew back in the day, they were just, like, free agents, (laughs) you know what I mean? They didn't really roll with any particular gang, they were cool with different people from different gangs, but... Man, a lot of them were so volatile and violent that they didn't even really fit into a brotherhood of a certain gang. Like, they were just fucking wrecking balls, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I heard this thing years ago about the trajectory of young males and young females when it comes to clicks and social networks, right? Men, when they're younger, boys, tend to bond together more. So that could be through sporting clubs, friendship groups, and certainly, certainly gang culture. They tend to be more close, more tight-knit. But as time goes on, they tend to become more lonely and disassociated from each other, and they move apart As they get into their 30s and their 40s, Uh, which is why you look at the suicide rates of men in their 40s, 50s, and it's just horrific, you know. And on the flip side, sometimes young girls, especially in a schoolyard setting, and a teenage setting, they tend to be very clicky, quite bitchy towards each other. A lot of my female friends say this, when they're young, there's a lot of tension between them. But as they move through their 20s, their 30s, they start to shed this kind of volatility between each other and they start to have more common ground through uh, marriage and motherhood and they start to bond with each other more and women end up going on to have closer stronger friendships you know and that's why i think it's it's really important for guys to stay in touch with each other because i find i'm experiencing it now myself social isolation and men focusing more on careers and projects and moving in that direction where they split apart from the kind of gang fraternity that they once had it does take its toll in the sense that there's an undercurrent of loneliness there yeah and i think for men that's something you just have to be cautious of as you are as you go throughout the various phases of life you know is to try and keep those bonds that are worth keeping and to form new bonds and to stay socially active because men, we are inherently lonely creatures. And um, yeah, it only gets worse. Yeah, I think people would trip in mainstream society if they really knew the weapons that were on the streets, right? Even from years ago, guys were rolling around with trolley poles. Uh, you know, you get the Coles or Woolworth shopping trolleys and you kick out the handle and then you can kind of break off the plastic coating with the branding underneath it and you're left with a steel pole. That was really common back in the day. Guys rolling around with box cutters, even really cheap box cutters from the supermarket or Stanley knives from $2 shops, you know what I mean? Bowies, you know, Boeing knives fucking machetes, big crazy fucking machetes, um, the, but, but batons, the batons from army disposals, you know what I mean, extendable batons, the fuck you right up, you know, homemade knuckle dusters, or guys that will carry screwdrivers and tire irons or this type of thing because if you get pulled up on the street by police it's not really a charge you just oh i just gotta help my mate fix his car or blah blah, blah 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 there's a throw-off excuse as to why you're carrying it people get super creative with the weapons that they're carrying you know what i mean and guns too you know of course they had that like gun amnesty once upon a time but even when i was hanging around like Some of these things that don't look like the Hollywood guns, you know, like you're seeing things that people have racked from farms or family heirlooms or guns that are made up of mixed parts, like weird things that have been sawn off and, and, and cut down. Certainly doesn't look like the movies, you know, like, and yeah, some guys had some pretty like Hollywood looking guns. And I think what's happened is they've become more and more prevalent in society. You're seeing them more now, like, um, especially seeing like, big raids and a lot of these weapons uncovered now but there were guys on the street rolling around with like pen guns and, and weird things where you got two three four parts from different guns put together and a lot of nightmare stories too like a, a guy i know allegedly i've uh, been pinched for it but allegedly he went to um shoot someone else and accidentally shot himself you know with this homemade gun Another guy told me that once upon a time, he allegedly went to shoot someone, but because he had this weird kind of homemade gun, the thing kind of like fell apart. I think, fuck, imagine being on the other side of that transaction, <laughs> you know, like your lucky day, you buy a fucking Tats Lotto ticket on the way home. But um, yeah, like I always found weapons to be one of those things that the more they're around, the more likely they're gonna get used. And because when you're putting weapons into the hands of mentally unstable people, particularly young males, yeah, shit's bound to go down, man. It's not good. Not good at all. Yeah, yeah. This is not the life I envisioned as a child, but it's the only life I have, you know? I wish I could sit here and I could tell you different stories. Stories about being the maddest sports player, the most high achieving academic genius, the young guy that hooked up with every hot girl in the area. But that's not me and that's not my life, unfortunately. But at the same time, I wouldn't trade my experiences in life because I learnt a lot. I'm richer for the experience. And you can't stew on the past you can't, you can't look back and say, if this, if that, but this, but that, you know, if my auntie had a dick, she'd be my uncle, <laughs> right? yeah, I used to know this old bookie, and he used to go and watch each race with his book of bets, right, and he'd come back and he'd say, ah, oh, did my money on the race, number four got up, but if the jockey on number five, if he had a cut the inside or come off the fence or blah 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 blah. ah well if this if that if my auntie had a dick she'd be my uncle (laughs) yeah i always like that one every now and then when i'm having a shit day or i'm stewing on something from the past i just take a deep breath and i think of that old bookie and i say to myself and have a chuckle oh well if my auntie had a dick she'd be my uncle Yeah, yeah, I think what plays into gang culture to some degree, but mainly just the personal lives of a lot of young men is the mistrust of authority, right? Your first, your first authoritative figures in life is your parents, then it's school teachers, then it's older adults, older kids, then it's government, then it's police screws inside the prison system, your manager at work, whatever it is. You encounter people in positions of authority figuratively over you throughout your life. And um, I think there's always kind of three channels that I have always looked at. You get some people that are really like goody two-shoes codependent with their parents. This type of people, they usually love the government. They usually love police. They feel this sanctuary of safety with all the authorities within their life because their projection is that all authority is good and should be held close. Kind of then you have the middle bracket, which I think is quite healthy. You have people Who have mixed views case by case on authority. Some authority is good, some authority is bad. They have a discerning quality about them in which they can manage their relationships with authority. This person's usually pretty healthy mentally. Then you have people like me and my friends growing up who fucking hated authority, always hated working for other people, always hated being told what to do because the lineage of this is that it starts within the home. If you don't trust your first authority, your parents or maybe one parent in particular, if you don't trust or respect their authority, you're constantly triggered by other authority in life, right? And certainly for young males that start to transcend towards a criminal lifestyle, you're going to come into contact with the police sooner or later, right? And the police becomes this big bubble of authority to you. It becomes an us versus them thing because so many people have such bad experiences with the police growing up because as an organization, they've just got such deep rooted corruption problems, right? You know, like how many of my friends have been bashed by the police? Countless stories, you know. We'd just be sitting around sometimes as youths and police would come up and just shine torches right in your eyes, right in front of you and try and staunch you out, all this kind of stuff. And the thing is, when you're already predisposed to have these issues with authority, this just continues to deepen your hatred and you start to really resent anyone in any position of authority, Fuck every establishment there is. Fuck the government. Fuck the police. Fuck anybody that thinks they've got some power over me. You know, I want autonomy in life. If I fucking die, I die. If I live, I live. If I succeed, I succeed on my own. You start to get really just blind tunnel vision towards that narrative. And, um, you know, like one weekend, two years ago... Basically, there was a little bit of a fracara out the front of this pub, right? This older guy kind of started on a friend of mine. My friend jazzed him, allegedly. And, and didn't really go anywhere from there, but six, seven, eight of his big mates, they all come out from the pub. These guys, all 15 years older than us, were totally outnumbered. I'm Stoned as fuck, too, at the time. And long story short, we're kind of nearly had this big blue but a friend of mine there really good fighter and a terrific bloke he kind of helped to like diffuse it all we kind of both went our separate ways it was just pretty minor you know then out comes another couple of friends of his totally late to the party they start swinging on my friend this is the middle of a super busy urban area in melbourne i won't say where but in the heat of the moment, my mate pulls out this knife that he had on him. He's got this flick knife thing, small, but dangerous. it so definitely go through. And he starts taking these big, big swings at this guy. Lucky for him, he was on some Matrix shit that night. This drunk guy, he starts just like fully dodging it, swinging it, contorting every which way. My mate had a few goes at him and lucky it didn't connect because it would have gone straight through the ribs or the chest. like. Would have been a big Saturday night for all involved. <laughs> but um, yeah, long story short, that kind of gets shut down again from there. We go our separate ways. We go to split a karma mate down because he was super steamed. And next minute we're walking away from the scene. And bang, this police car comes swerving in 100 miles an hour. Double parked across the tram tracks. Two cops jump out. They draw their guns straight towards us and they just come charging at us, right? And my hearing's never been that good. And then there's two cops yelling at two of us and all you can hear is, fucking cunt, fucking get fuck up against the wall. Fucking cunt, this, that, fuck. I thought, oh, we're off here. we're gonna get shot in the fucking head. And then I can still see it happen like slow motion. You know, this police issue Glock coming straight towards my face and getting pushed in between my eyes. And I got my hands in the air and by this stage they're telling us to turn around we go to turn around and then you can feel the gun getting pushed into the back of your head I'm thinking oh man they're gonna pistol whip me you'll get fucking shot here Like, anyway these cops were rushing right I think they are maybe coked up or something pumped full of adrenaline they start patting us down I had things on me they didn't even find they're buzzing and they're telling us we're looking for a guy out here swinging a knife we're throwing off pretending we don't know anything about it and anyway, they finally kind of come to this point where they stare at each other confused, you know, because we match the description. But then they let us go. And we we're still kind of in a little bit of shock. We had another mate that had like done a U-turn in a car and he was about to pick us up. So we get in the car with him. We just wanted to get out of there. We just needed to peel off like ASAP. Anyway, our mate that's driving the car at the time, is pissed as a parrot. And he starts doing all this weird shit in the middle of the in the middle of the street trying to reverse anyway those same cops in a police car within three minutes they're back in the car they pull us up again they jump out again they're flashing the torches through the car but they can't even remember that it's the same two guys that they just pulled up with someone else i'm in the back seat and i'm thinking man you just nearly shot me in the head two minutes ago and you haven't even Jerryed that it's the same person. There's something about them, I just didn't trust them. I thought these guys are rushing off the head. I was super lucky I didn't get shot. And they're frantic, right? Anyway, we managed to get through that hoop, yeah? jump that hurdle. They let us go again. And then I just remember waking up the next morning, more to the point, sorry for the long-winded rant, but more to the point, I remember waking up the next day and just thinking, yeah, it's us versus them. It just crystallized more this anti-establishment notion that I had in my head. It just embedded it deeper into my psyche, like fuck authority, fuck them, fuck all authority. I just wanna be autonomous and independent. I don't wanna have anyone try and control me. I wanna have total agency over myself. It's us versus them, you know? and look the older I get maybe I get a little bit wiser and I realize there's a lot of people out there that need leadership and they need guidance and not all authority is bad so you really have to challenge your own triggers and start to have a more discerning view of what good leadership looks like and I'm not really a fan of the word authority I prefer to look at it as leadership and I think um Especially young males, they need good role models and good leadership. So I think some degree of authority is actually important. But I think we've got a lot of complex problems with authority in our country. Particularly at a law enforcement and government level. Yeah, Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I think the crazy thing about grief is that when you grieve for the dead whether it's dead friends, dead acquaintances, dead family members. In essence, it's final. There's a finality to it because that person's no longer with us on planet Earth. They're no longer in the same realm as us. It's tragic, and I think it's the hardest form of grief, personally. But you learn to just remember the memories that you have of the person, and it's kind of like there's this final image of the person and there's no way that you can ever be in touch with that person again. So you have to start the process of just grieving for them and living on through memory and through legacy. But when you grieve the loss of someone that's still living, usually maybe a girl you loved, or a parent that's no longer around, there's something awkwardly strange about it because the person is still living. Somewhere out there you're aware that life goes on for the two of you separately. And I think there's always that element to it of wondering. Wondering if your paths will cross again. It's a strange form of grief. Yeah. I can't speak for others, but for myself, I found a strange plateau period in turning my life around, right? Because I think sometimes when you're down and out, you just think, if I can just get over this addiction or this sick and twisted way of thinking, or if I can just get rid of these coping mechanisms, then I'll be fine. Everything's going to be fucking roses, sometimes what happens is you work so hard to peel back these coping mechanisms addictions whatever it is that's really holding you back that's really hitting you on a day-to-day level you peel that back and then there's this awkward plateau where you realize you have the beauty of a blank canvas but there's also an emptiness you now need to move on with your life and really dig deep inside your soul and inside your psyche and challenge the way you're thinking to overcome the years and years of built up trauma and negative thinking that led you to be down and out in the first place, you know what I mean? So I think I I have seen a lot of people around me get stuck as well at that point where they they push real hard to get off drugs or stop gambling or to, to, to stop eating so bad or whatever it is and then they hit this point where they're like, well, it's not fulfilling like I thought it was. They've done the work but it's not as fulfilling as they thought it was gonna be. And I think that's where like phase two kicks in, where you start to to build your your new life, build upon that blank canvas, you know? But it's tough because you can't delete the past. There's no men in black machine thing they're gonna wipe in front of your eyes, you know? Like um, the awkward thing is, is you live in this kind of like purgatory for a little bit where you're transcending your old lifestyle, but you're starting to recreate your new lifestyle and it's a major change. And then you realize over time that change is the only constant. You always have to be changing. You always have to be evolving. But when you first start this journey of trying to turn your life around, yeah, you do hit this awkward plateau, or at least I experienced that. I'm sure a few other people can relate. And you live in this awkward limbo too, where maybe new people that you meet, they can't understand your past. And then sometimes you've still got people you're connected with from the past that can't understand what you're doing in the present. So yeah, it's a lonely journey, man, for sure. But there's no other option really. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the harsh reality of turning your life around as well, especially if you've suffered from mental health issues is that it doesn't ever go away. And it's awkward even for psychologists and professionals to tell you this early on because no one wants you to lose hope. But the truth is you discover along the way that you always have this devil in the back of your mind. never goes away. But what happens is you get much better at managing it and you start to manage it much better, much better, so good to the point where that voice of that little devil in your head becomes so small. It's drowned out by all the positivity that you're, you're pushing for yourself. You know, but the truth is you always fluctuate. It's always there. It's just that you get so much better at managing it. But it's difficult to look someone in the face who's down and out, who's contemplating suicide and telling them that. Because you don't want them to lose hope because there is this kind of awkward plateaus that happen throughout the journey of turning your life around where you will wonder if it's all really worth it. But the truth is, it is. I think it is really worth it. It's like living two lives in one, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Some of the stuff you see years ago on the trains was just crazy. I don't know, I'm catching trains a little bit in Melbourne and Sydney these days and I don't know, I just feel like they're not as crazy as they used to be like growing up in melbourne the train system was kind of like the veins of the city and for young teenagers that don't drive or anything you got everywhere via train and so we're up and down all the train lines rocking through all suburbs you just see the funniest weirdest most outlandish shit right you know i met this guy on a train once And he was on all these uh, mushrooms, magic mushrooms, right? Had all these blue meanie magic mushrooms. Had a whole glad bag for them. He's trying to offer it to me. And um, ticket inspectors are coming through the carriage. And I was looking out for him. I said, hey, hey, bro, have you got a ticket? ticket inspector's coming through. He's a little bit fragile, you know. He was fucking tripping balls. But he didn't really jerry to what I was trying to tell him. He just saw people moving through the train. And then he threw all these magic mushrooms under the seat. He thought they were police, and he's trying to empty out all these magic mushies all over the floor on the train, and then, you know, a couple minutes later when he Jerry there, it's just ticket inspectors, he's crawling all over the train floor trying to pick them back up, but he's just, like, tripping as well, you know, and he told me he does this once a year, he's from up in the up in the hills, and once a year, he just dump a whole bunch of magic mushrooms or a acid trip, and just get on a train and ride it from end to end, back and forth you know like yeah just like transient humans that you come across just doing stuff like this you know I remember like there used to be this uh this like bad brassy chick you see her everywhere she always if you caught her on a train she'd never remember your name or anything but she'd just look at you and just start chewing your ear off with all the stories of hardship and this and that and blah 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 sometimes I just wasn't in the zone for it you know But the ticket inspectors, they used to get on the train and they'd look at her and they go, Marissa, Marissa, Marissa. Like they knew her by first name. And she'd go, oh, please don't pinch me. I got pinched yesterday. I can't afford it. It's just like, they're just nonstop grabbing her all day long for having no ticket and just riding the trains. And actually, at Ringwood Station, there used to be this tag on the on um platform three that used to say marissa is a dog and i could guarantee it's the same marissa <laughs> yeah. yeah i see all sorts of like crazy stuff you know on the trains like guys that used to be seat slashers, guys that would get on with something sharp and slash the seats you know you ever go through a train carriage back in the day and see all the seats slashed you know mates of mine used to grow up doing um boot outs which is like where you sort of like lay on the seats or on the floor, and with the full force of your leg, you boot the, boot the windows out of the train. Usually the old Hitachi carriages, you could do it. So sometimes you see trains pull in when they still had Harrys, and fucking there'd be hardly any windows on some of the carriages too. And with those trains too, a lot of guys used to like hang out the side of the train as well, which is crazy because the doors would just pop open. So in between train carriage, like, in- <laughs> so like in between stations, guys would just like. Um, maybe do hangouts and do tags on the outside of the train but some guys would just open up the doors and just sit with their legs hanging out the side of the train you know like yeah they'd just be saying they want some fresh air or something (laughs) you know like um yeah all sorts of crazy shit man you see on the trains like countless experiences i seen this 14 year old girl once pissing in between the two carriages of like a connex train you know what i mean um, her and her friend were drunk, drinking this goon bag, and they were chewing my ear off, and then this bloke's on the nod real bad next to us, he kept getting filthy, because, like, they were too loud, they were interrupting his, his Murray cod, you know, <laughs> like, and then this girl's just, like, peeing in between the two carriages, squatting down, you know, like, oh, man, countless things that you would see, like, um, yeah, guys used to, like, surf trains, and tragically uh, I knew this really terrific young guy that died doing it and quite a few people had died doing it, friends of friends, etc. Yeah, it's very tragic because that was quite common. Guys used to train surf. Um, you know, do crazy like hang out the hang out the side of trains, do all sorts of stuff, you know, it's just anything for young men to get a thrill, you know what I mean? <laughs> like Yeah, anything. Seen a fair few, like, arguments and blues go down on trains. Some punches thrown. Weird old boob heads you meet pulling out weapons, trying to be tough on trains. And, yeah. Now, mostly when I ride the train, it's just people going to work. It's quite refreshing, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think the crazy thing about um suicidal ideation is when you start to get so close to manifesting it to the point where you're really 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 considering doing it this huge wave of anxiety would always hit me over the years and i think nah nah just just gotta hold on i just gotta dig deep i gotta numb myself out or i've gotta find a way just to make it through just to hold on but tragically not everybody can make it through that wave you know what i mean A good friend of mine many years ago actually told me this fucking crazy story that he got a rope, tied it to the fan, had a table underneath him, kicked out the table, went to hang himself, his feet hit the ground. He miscalculated the table and the length of the rope and everything, and his feet hit the ground. And in that moment, he realized that was a sign. That was a sign that he needed to go on and keep living. And tragically, a few years later, he passed away and Similar circumstances, yeah, yeah, it was a terrific blow, too. It's very tragic, you know. Like, hustle culture is really big these days, motivational speakers, TikTok legends, all this kind of stuff. Man, you know who's inspiring junkies, your average brass monkey on the street. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, listen, right? Because no matter what, those guys with crazy heroin habits, no matter what, they'll get something in their arm by the end of the day. The sheer tenacity and drive they have, even though it's being driven by addiction, it's totally unhealthy lifestyle. I'm just having a laugh here, but in essence, these guys, they make it fucking happen. No matter what, rain, hail, shine, anything, these guys are going to get on Before the end of the day, sometimes twice. 100% tenacious. Chase the dragon, chase the dream, chase the goal. Guys like this should be motivational speakers. (laughs) You know, actually, I knew this guy, an old acquaintance of mine, and he told me one time, he dead said, told me one time, that in he calculated roughly that in a 12 month period, he put 180 grand worth of heroin through his arm. It shot up 180,000. I said, but how do you fund this? Because this guy wasn't even really like a mad earner or a crim. And look, I think he got most of it on credit and sly jobs and ripping people off and stuff. But no matter what, with this huge tolerance he had, this huge heroin habit, that guy every day managed to get on and put $180,000 of heroin through his arm, man. Yeah. Tony Robbins, eat your fucking heart out, (laughs) Uh, it's dark, man, it's dark, but yeah, sometimes you have to laugh at things as a coping mechanism, yeah, particularly with drugs, because I feel like every decade or so, heroin had a huge resurgence, has a huge resurgence, um, and there was an era a little while ago where it just felt like a lot of young people were just like tragically getting swept up into using heroin a lot of my friends you know what I mean a lot and man there's a lot of aspects to it where you look at it too like you know even with like the pain that people are going through that drives them to use heroin it's just like nothing else matters you know I can remember a really good friend of mine overdosed. I was there. He'd overdosed in front of two of us. And we're passing out. we go, man, they are not looking good. There's a big rash starting to crawl up one side of his body. And he's just looked like beetroot color, red. It was kicking in. You know, he said, we've got to save you. But he wouldn't let us call an ambulance because he had warrants out. And he was on the run. And he's like, I'm going to go to jail. I'm going to get pinched. I'm just going to wait it out. I was like, no, 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 come on, man. This is your life, you know? And he's t- saying, no, nah, no, nah, I think I'm just having a reaction to the cutters. Just wait, just wait, just wait. Oh, I can't believe we even waited. But yeah, like he pulled through. <laughs> he pulled through. Um, yeah. It's just like, stupid stuff that I would just hate to see now you know a lot of guys were dying mixing heroin with um benzodiazepines like xanax or you know this kind of thing because the chemical mixture is not good for your body and yeah the lengths that people will go to to acquire the drug too is crazy i've seen guys rip their own grandmothers just to come and get on because so a lot of my friends were wheelers right Guys doing anything, steal a lawnmower salad for 20 bucks, or guys that do big diamond snatches and safes and everything like that, just to fund the lifestyle of just using heroin. All just to bury the traumas within them and numb themselves out. I think that's the foundation of a lot of it. It's just tragic, man. So many people, it's like every week you'd be hearing about someone you knew or someone you were friends with or friends of friends, acquaintances, somebody dying, someone dropping. It's just fucking tragic, man. Seriously. And you look at it on a global scale, too. You know, they used to have this saying, China white. And most of it used to come from China. After America invaded Afghanistan and all these reports started coming out that they were terrorizing and demolishing and levelling half the cities, but they were leaving the poppy fields. Next minute, what happens? Something like 85 or 90% of the world's heroin starts coming out of Afghanistan. Tell me that's not a fucking coincidence, right? Have a look at the opiate problem in America. All of a sudden, opioids getting sold, you know, legally. I'm talking oxycontins, Fentanyl, all this kind of stuff. Have a look at what that's become in America and tell me that there's not something shady going on the last 20 to 25 years you know yeah and and the prescription drugs that they sell legally are just as fucked up you know i can remember eating those burgundy oxycontins or 30 milligram ones i remember eating two of those one night a mate of mine is probably going to listen to this and be laughing because he was there we've all had all these oxycontin,s and about five of us young guys 18 to 21 years old we're all sitting in a room just stoning off these oxycontin,s taking turns to vomit <laughs> you know like you look back and you think what kind of fucking idiots were we? what are we doing what fun are we having you know what I mean 18 to 21 years old you should be out on the town should be out with a nice girl or something and here's four or five of us guys just trying to numb ourselves in a room taking turns to spew up this one young bloke there just spewed like throughout the whole hallway the bathroom everything spewed all over my mate's computer just like a fucking vomit party you know <laughs> oh, disgusting behaviour man seriously fucked up I certainly changed things as well yeah, and I was involved in that for a few years not taking it but wheeling it right and you live on crackhead hours because it doesn't stop and you got to keep up with the bizzo and i feel a lot of guilt and shame for being involved at the time because i fucking i hate the drug it changed the fabric of society when ice came in it f- speed straight away phased out within a couple of years and then you just started to see all these fucking reptiles on the streets, you know what I mean, just wired people being up for one, two weeks sometimes, at least two, three, four days, just committing petty crime and doing anything they can to get this fiendish fucking drug, and here I am just like, putting that poison in people's systems, you know, I feel a lot of guilt and a lot of shame for that, but I was just young and I wanted to move up the ranks and I was just silly. But I really think that ICE changed the landscape of drug abuse in Australia for the absolute worst. And the thing is, it migrated from the city and the suburbs out to the country towns. And from what I understand, it's just totally ravaged country towns. Yeah, like in parallel to that, cocaine abuse has gone up mega. I think Australia's like ranks high globally for cocaine use, and there's a lot of money in coke. But, um, the ice in particular just totally, totally ravaged society, man. Yeah, I can't stand that drug, man. I want nothing to do with that drug. Yeah, I've seen a lot of people as well just that you wouldn't expect just totally change on it. Yeah. It just struck them to the core of their being. And eventually it wears them down physically and mentally and it just eats at the soul, you know. Fucking horrible, man. i had a really big appetite for weed right i was a big chul smoker from 16 to 28 12 years i smoked every day every night yeah for the first few years it was fantastic it was just something i really used to numb myself out and i really as much as i did a lot of other drugs at the time I stayed away from trying to have like a class a drug addiction but I certainly had a massive appetite for weed in saying that I know it's a more culturally celebrated drug it's similar to alcohol some people think it's cool somewhat blasé to smoke weed lots of random people smoke weed and I think in many uses it's um can be advantageous but I think for the real hardcore bong heads or everyday smokers, it's a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> it's a bunch of bullshit, in my opinion. I think it kind of numbs you out, slows down your maturity, um, somewhat stifling for your social skills and your creativity. And yeah, yeah, I wish I got rid of it much sooner in my life, you know, but I haven't smoked weed in years now. But I used to be real well-known for it. I was just obsessed with it. I was obsessed with always having the bomb trough. I was known for that. Always moving it, always selling it. Always had it even in a drought, even when it was dry. It was just like having milk in the fridge, you know? And I look I look at the the way it's been legalized around the world now, and I'm sure that's gonna to come to Australia eventually. Um, already for medicinal purposes it is and a lot of smokers I know are just buying that medical they're getting it legally and this kind of thing and sooner or later the government's going to tax it they're going to make big revenue out of it but it's the retrospective of looking at it and thinking man I can't believe I risked my freedom moving this drug I had a falling out with a guy over a hydro setup that I had he was growing for me and you know just the impact that this thing had on my life and how much my use of the drug and my business with the drug stayed in the shadows right and then sooner or later it's just going to become a government product like tobacco or alcohol i think the difficult thing that lifting the lid on is going to be like retrospective compensation for people that have had criminal charges for for weed you know what i mean a lot of people I know have been done growing and trafficking and etc. And um, it's always been like, <laughs> in the criminal world, it's kind of always just been like a standard, relatively easy business to run. It's quite a safe, low-key thing to do, you know what I mean? A lot of guys go in and out doing it over the years. I certainly did. I was moving other things at other times, you know, but it was always there. Yeah. But in essence, uh, I hate to upset all the stoners, but I just think it's an overrated drug and yeah. Yeah, you hear this saying growing up a lot, respect your elders. But for me, when I was growing up and for a lot of my friends that had complex relationships with authority, I used to sit there and think, why? Why should I respect the opinion of someone who's 60, 70 years old, that failed to achieve their dreams in life, that's failed to actualize what they envision for themselves in life, who's broke, who's struggling, who's wasted their entire existence? Why should I respect them? What can they tell me about life? I was pretty cold in this sense, you know what I mean? I used to think a lot of older people with their religious views, with their societal views, I used to think a lot of them were just fucking (laughs) batshit. Yeah, Yeah, I used to just think, I'm going to pick and choose who I choose to respect, right? Particularly if they're older than me. And maybe over time I've softened up because I've realized you can learn from the mistakes of others. Sometimes it's only in the twilight years of their life where people have this kind of full circle wisdom. And I think it's important to listen into what they're telling you. And also you can learn a lot about the history of life, history of your own society, your hood, everything through older people. It's quite interesting, quite fascinating. But... Yeah, it's hard when you've got a difficult relationship with authority to just throw a blanket over it and respect all your elders. I used to think, why? (laughs) Why? But at the same time, I've always loved the history of... the history of Melbourne, right? The history of Australian lifestyle, because I would hear a lot from older generations, and I did have a lot of older mentors. I would hear a lot about the golden days of crime in the 70s and the 80s, even the 90s from a lot of older crooks, a lot of friends of mine's parents or associates, heads I used to deal to, whatever, that were from back in the day. And they tell you about the crazy, crazy decades of armed robberies, before CCTV surveillance, moving cash and drugs around on flights and um, parties. That used to go on mingling with high society just intense stories that you hear from older heads you know what i mean tales of pentridge prison tales of this tales of that and we used to sit around as young heads and just soak in this wisdom you know and i would respect some of those elders you know some not all but some <laughs> and um yeah at the same time i would hear a lot through my father or through my grandparents, my mother uh, and just other older people in general about, you know, SP bookmakers, um, the era of big cash and punting and gambling in Australia. It was like a second economy, right? I hear a lot about that back in the day. The great sporting moments of Australia, the great music moments of Australia, the live music scene, just tales of the 70s, the 80s, you know, illegal card games before Crown Casino, all this kind of stuff. So I always kind of respected the lineage of what came before me as well. I was certainly respected by history. You know what I mean? I was just very picky on who I chose to respect. Every generation's got its shit talkers. <laughs> uh, but I feel like sometimes I am in this awkward twilight phase between the new school of life that's totally dominated by the internet and social media which did come in while I was growing up but then most of my life growing up was lived before that and I had this strong history passed down to me through lots of older heads from older domains so put me in this kind of awkward twilight period and I really think that my generation right I'm born in 1990 I'm 32 years old I think my generation is the last generation before everything really shifted. And you're gonna look back in history and look at my age and think some of the stuff we lived through was just crazy. From 9-11, planes hitting the towers, COVID-19, the rapid rise of social media, the internet, um, intense globalization, everything. Think of everything that's occurred in the last 20 to 25 years, 30 years. It's been an intense period of transition. And even older heads say to me now that life is moving more rapidly than it once did. And I think for my generation, we've had to face that challenge of a super fast-moving, ever-changing world. And it's only just going to keep trending that way. But we're kind of caught between worlds. I feel like there's a real paradigm shift the last 15 years or so. And I feel like for my generation, my age group... And a little bit prior, maybe a little bit forwards, we were on the cusp of that. We could see it from both angles. And I think they'll look back in time, 50, 100, 150, 200 years, they'll look backwards, and they'll say, what a crazy, crazy epoch in time all that was. And we're currently living in the middle of it right now. Yeah. Yeah, there's a trick sometimes to think about If you're really down and out, you're feeling suicidal, you're feeling super depressed, you feel lonely, tell yourself this, you have a child. Yeah, you have a child, it's your inner child. Once upon a time in life, you were just an innocent young child. And whatever happened to you and whatever transpired, it's likely wasn't your fault. And it fucked you up. And it molded you and it changed you and it gave you this big, 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 wave of problems to overcome that you're pushing to overcome now and you're succeeding but you're caught in it just remember something on those dark days you have a child and that child is still inside you it's you it's your inner child look after that little kid that little girl that little boy whatever it is look after them the same way you look at a little girl little boy and you look after them if it's your friend's kid or someone you bump into got to learn to treat yourself like that Because the cold reality is the opposite, where you fucking torture yourself. And that's dark. That's real dark. I think one thing with the socioeconomic status of Australia, and I touch on this because I think it's relevant to how a lot of people grow up. It's very distinct by class, you know what I mean? We tend to separate by class. Lower, middle, upper class, the 1%. One thing that I think is quite distinct about Western culture, socio-economically, is that middle class is the largest bubble there is, and that's exactly what it is. It's a bubble. It's a trap. You get stuck there. I read a very interesting thing about class fluidity, the movement of people between socio-economic statuses. Right? A lot of people that are born poor, they end up getting rich out of sheer determination to change for the better. And there are countless, countless people that are stuck in the cycle of poverty. Of course, generationally, it just goes in the same direction that it always has for that family. This is obviously very common. But one thing they've noticed with economic status is that across time, some people have moved from the lower class through the middle into the upper class. And then what happens with a lot of the upper class is it's intergenerational money. And the money was maybe made by the great grandfather or the grandfather. And by the time it trickles down a few generations later, the work ethic and the money management skills are gone and people go broke. And then they rotate around the class structure. But they tend to rotate pretty rapidly between the low class and the upper class, and then from the upper class back to the low class. And the majority of people in Australia live within the middle class, which I think is a bit of a trap. Because you're not really upper class, you're not doing as well as you could be. But it's not like I'm lower class, it's not like I'm in poverty. That kind of complacency and attitude will keep you stuck in life. And when it comes to the issues of the world, I think particularly Maybe coming from a lower to middle socio-economic background, I can sort of speak in the sense to tell people in the broader mainstream of society that they wonder why people don't care. Because the thing is, lower class people in poor areas, Aussie battlers, working families, they've got different realities and different problems, you know, uh... Not having an opinion left or right, I'm just saying, in essence, maybe something like climate change. When you tell a working mother, a single mother, she's trying to hold down a job, maybe two of them, she's trying to keep her kids out of the streets, she's trying to keep them educated, trying to put food on the table. She's got no time for herself, everything's devoted to the family. She's just trying to pay the rent, she's trying to get by, she's trying to make do with what she has, do her best she's got problems. She's got to pay the rent next week. She's got to keep her kids out of trouble tomorrow, every day. So if you tell her that the world's going to self-destruct in 200 years or something because of climate, do you think she has the space to care about that problem? Some of these problems in life, they're privileged problems. It's for the privileged people that are semi-comfortable or comfortable to worry about. And that's the sad reality is we've got different perspectives based on the reality that's in front of us, right? And you wonder why there's some people out there that don't care about social agendas, because they're stark. they've got problems, got mental health issues, they've got economic problems, they've got families, they're battling it out, they don't have time to care about smaller, more insignificant issues, they've got pressing issues, everyone in the world's got problems, even the richest people I know, they've got problems, right? New levels, new devils. No matter how high up you go, you've got problems in life. Yeah, and I think in essence what's happening with society in Australia is be- it's becoming rapidly divided, more divided than ever, right? And I'm not saying that there's not problems and I've got certain opinions on some of these social problems and socio-economic problems separately, but just in general when you look across the class structure of Australia. We've got to find a way to kind of unite and coexist, regardless of our differences and opinions. And I think that's always been the eternal eternal struggle of societies across the history of the world. I mean, fuck. Yeah. What are you gonna do? <laughs> yeah.